My name is Keith Cowart, lead pastor of Christ Community, and each week I or one of our pastors will bring a message that we pray will stir your heart. We believe that God is the source of life and truth and that his word is one of the primary means through which we make that vital connection with God. It's our hope that whether you're already a believer or just beginning to open your heart to God, that the truth of his word would point you to him. He came that you would have life and that more abundantly. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. For seven, you can be seated for just a moment. For 17 years, we have declared that great truth with joy and excitement on Resurrection Sunday morning. But do you know where that first came from? Do you know where that practice of saying, He is risen, He is risen indeed, comes from? It comes from the earliest days of Christianity when believers would greet one another that way. One believer would say to the other, he is risen, and the other would respond, he is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. From the earliest days of Christianity, the resurrection has been the most important event in history, and it has defined our faith. We celebrate as Christians, no matter what our circumstances, this is not denial, this is not pie in the sky, we celebrate because we know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We celebrate because he has conquered sin and death, and so no matter what we face in this world, we will always have the hope of the resurrection. It is the heart of our faith as Christians, and we ought to celebrate I mean, we ought to celebrate just as they did 2,000 years ago. Can we just do it one more time? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Can you imagine what it must have been like on that first Sunday, Resurrection Sunday morning? And can you imagine the joy and the excitement that they must have experienced I mean, as they realized that Jesus was alive. He truly was alive. I can tell you this. Whatever they were experiencing at that moment was radically different from what they were feeling just hours before. Well, you talk about an emotional roller coaster. I mean, just hours before that Sunday morning, his followers were completely devastated. Their master the one to whom they had dedicated their entire lives, the one whom they had devoted themselves to entirely, leaving everything in order to follow him, was dead. At the age of 33, at the height of his ministry, he was gone, and they were devastated. They were disillusioned. Their hopes and their dreams of of a new kingdom that would restore Israel to its former power and glory were in a moment dashed when Jesus was put on that cross. They were terrified. They were terrified. I mean, they had just witnessed the gruesome death of their master. And if the religious leaders had been so bold as to crucify and execute one who was so popular with the people, then they would have no trouble whatsoever rounding up the rest of them and stamping out whatever it took to stamp out this new upstart sect called Christianity. 
You cannot overstate how low they would have been just hours before. They were lost, their world was falling apart, and they were scattered all over the city and hiding. They had staked everything on Jesus, and now he was gone, and with him, everything they had believed in. That was where they were just hours before. And from that day to this, the world has debated the nature and the true identity of this man named Jesus. Who was he? Who was he really? Who was he truly? To be sure, some have hated him. Not only the the religious leaders of that day, but, but others have hated him as well. Typically people who are in power and dominion over others because Jesus was dangerous. Jesus proclaimed a dangerous message of freedom. And dictators don't like freedom. And so many have been afraid of him. Others, most people, I think we can say safely, have considered Jesus to be a good man. Maybe even one of the best who's ever lived. I mean, even even people in other faiths can look at the life of Jesus and conclude, truly, he was a good man. Some would go a little farther and say he was a great moral teacher on which uh, many of the the citizens, many of the... um, uh, the, the, the nations of the world have based their, their understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Their understanding of right living have been based on his words. Others have been drawn to his leadership. They've been inspired by this revolutionary who was willing to give his life to inspire change. But I agree with C.S. Lewis, who said that such ways of thinking about Jesus could not be more misguided. Let me quote to you from Lewis. I'm trying here to present, to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. In Lewis's mind, we must conclude that Jesus was either lunatic, liar, or Lord, who actually said he was. Now, now there are some who have say there's a fourth option. And the fourth option is that the Jesus that we know about today is a legend, legend, that, that, the, that Jesus himself never actually personally claimed to be God. He never claimed equality with God. That was something that his followers made up in the years after his death. I don't know about you, but I've heard that one put forth often in the last few days. As people try desperately to understand who this Jesus is, there, there are those who would say he's just a legend. Uh, there's only one major problem with that theory, and that's this that it very quickly became quite unpopular to be identified as a follower of Jesus. 
mean, legends are best made at times of great popularity, right? Um, you know, but in the case of Christianity, most of the early disciples and literally thousands of early Christian believers, the same believers, according to this theory, who are, decide, who are trying to create this image of Christ as a legend, were being crucified, fed to the lions, burned or thrown in prison because they refused to renounce Jesus Christ and they would not cease, they would not stop proclaiming the message of his death and resurrection. Can you imagine dying for Paul Bunyan? I mean, you may believe and you may love a legend, but would you die for it? And yet thousands of Christians were were going to the grave willingly because they believed with every ounce of their being that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, something happened. And here's a critical question. What was it? What was it that radically transformed this band of devastated, disillusioned, and frightened followers of Jesus? What transformed them into an army of believers who could not be silenced? I believe with all my heart there's only one thing that can explain that, one reality that can make sense of that transformation, and it must be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That three days after he was put on that cross and crucified, that Jesus rose from the dead, that they saw him with their own eyes, that three days after they thought everything had been lost, Jesus reappeared to them and they now suddenly understood, probably for the first time yet, that Jesus was more than they had even imagined. Jesus had not come merely to establish an earthly kingdom. But Jesus had come to usher in a brand new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that would reign forever and ever in all eternity. That's the Jesus they now believed in. And that's why as Christians, even today, 2,000 years later, the resurrection is the linchpin of our faith. Without it, the Apostle Paul says, our faith is futile. The entire chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is devoted to the resurrection. And Paul just says it flat out. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then your faith is useless. Your faith is futile. But if he was raised from the dead, let me just read directly what he says in verses 54 through 58. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable. In other words, when, when we realize the reality of resurrection and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not in vain. See, because of the resurrection, 
We as God's people can stand firm in any circumstance because death has been defeated and nothing that we might give up in this world is in vain because he was raised from the dead. Now, we hear that passage mostly at funerals. But I want to tell you, brother, beloved, we ought to read it every single day. Because this passage is not about death, it's about life. It's about victorious life in the risen Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here today. That's why so many of you have gathered in this place to worship Jesus, the risen Lord. But now, what does this have to do with the book of Hebrews? This is the Easter message, but what does that have to do with the book of Hebrews? Because if you're a guest here this morning, just two weeks ago, we began a new study on the book of Hebrews. Um, We have only made it in two weeks through three verses. But I can tell you that uh, today we're going to go all the way to the fourth verse of chapter 2. We're going to cover an entire chapter today. Now, just let me remind you that um, the, the book of Hebrews is a letter from a pastor. A letter from a pastor. I think it's very interesting Interesting that we don't know exactly who it was. It wasn't one of the disciples, but it was one early pastor who had been converted through those disciples. And he now feels responsible for a group of believers that are uh, hundreds or maybe even thousands of miles away. More than likely, it was a small house church in or around the city of Rome. And this pastor has sent them a letter, but it's, but it's not a typical letter. In fact, the more you read it, the more you come to understand this isn't a letter, a personal letter at all. It is a sermon. He calls it later on in the book, a word of exhortation. This pastor has written this message to them in the form of a letter to encourage them. And one thing we absolutely know about this group of people is that they were of Jewish heritage. They had been born as Jews, But they had come to believe, they had accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. They had come to believe that he was the long-awaited Messiah, and they were now followers of Jesus. And and so the pastor writes in this letter, and i got to tell you, when you you look at the first few verses of this this letter or this sermon, even if we think of it as a sermon, it's a bit of an odd beginning. I mean, there's no introduction, there's no greeting, There are no pleasantries. The pastor just launches immediately into the theme of the sermon, and that is the superiority of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus. From the very first words, he launches into the heart of that message. He declares that Jesus is the final, God's final word of revelation, He says, Jesus is God's last word of revelation. He is God's son. He is the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. He is the sustainer of all things. He is our source of forgiveness. And he is the one who will reign forever at the right hand of God. All of that in three verses. Now you can understand why it's taken us so long to get through, right? But he launches immediately into these words of lifting Jesus up and proclaiming Jesus in all of his glory and in all of his magnitude. But I want to tell you that even there, he's not done yet. He's not even close to being done yet. He moves immediately from verse 3 into verse 4 where he goes on to say, and Jesus is also superior to the angels. 
superior to the angels. Let's just read those verses together in verses 4 through 14. So he became as much superior to the angels as was the name that he inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and the servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are like the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you will remain the same forever. And your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand and I make your enemies a footstool footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that Jesus is superior to the angels in five different ways. He says, first of all, Jesus is superior to them in his name. Jesus is not given a functional name like the angels. The the word angel literally means messenger. Their name is what they do. Jesus receives a family name. He is called my son. He has a superior position. The angels worship one who is greater than themselves. But Jesus is the one they worship. So he is greater than them in terms of his position. He has a superior status. The angels are like wind and fire, but Jesus sits on an everlasting throne. He has a superior existence. They were a part of God's creation, but Jesus was with God in creation. And everything that was made was made for him and by him. And then finally, Jesus has a superior role. Jesus has a superior existence. They were a part of creation, but Jesus was there when everything was made. He also has a superior role. They are servants, but Jesus will reign victoriously over all his enemies forever and ever. And so Jesus is superior to the angels. But why make this point? Why go to so much trouble to make this point about the superiority of Jesus to the angels? Well, first of all, because angels were a big deal. You know, we live in a secular society. We live in a scientific world. And and honestly, we don't think very much about angels. Not nearly as much as those in the first century did. Now, I will tell you. There are many people on the face of this earth today who understand that angels are still very, very real. Uh, And they are. I mean, the scripture never says in any way that that angels have lost their importance. Uh, There are missionaries all over the world today who will tell you of miraculous moments when angels have shown up at just the right moment to bring them, to protect them, and to save them. 
I mean, it's amazing. There's, a, there, there's a, a pattern that we hear over and over from many missionaries who tell the stories of being surrounded by cannibals, surrounded by uh, ferocious tribes who are ready to destroy them. And suddenly, for no apparent reason at all, they turn tail and run back in the jungle. And later on, sometimes even years later, after their conversion, they sit down together and say, tell us why you decided not to kill us. Tell us why you chose not to destroy us all that time ago. And there is a pattern of them saying, because when we came to destroy you, your hut was surrounded by men that were 10, 15 feet tall. They blazed with glory and they bore swords that looked like lightning. God's angels were there. Angels have always been a big deal. I mean, you look in Scripture, and anytime an angel shows up, people tend to freak out. They tend to hit the floor. They tend to fall on their face. They tend to cry out, God, forgive me. God, save me. Angels are awesome beings, but guess what? To the angels, it's Jesus who is awesome. If the angel is awesome, then how much more so is Jesus before whom they fall to their knees in worship? Angels were a big deal, so that means Jesus is a big deal as well. Angels were also heavenly beings. They were not of the stuff of man. And I don't think there's any question that one of the things that this pastor is trying to do is to completely do away with any notion that Jesus was just a man. He was not just a man. He was not even just an angel. Jesus was superior to the angels. So whatever you call him, don't just call him a good man. Angels were messengers of God, but Jesus was the message. They brought the message, but Jesus was the message. So obviously, if Jesus is superior to the angels, then Jesus is a big deal. But still, why make such a big deal of that? You've got to remember now, we're 2,000 years away from this. We're 2,000 years removed from where, this, from where this congregation sat. And so why is this pastor taking the time to proclaim the superiority of Jesus with so much detail? Well, I believe it makes sense if we understand this truth. As we've already said, this congregation was under severe pressure. They were under severe pressure. Now, it, it, it may well have been uh, that, that they were coming under the, the persecution of Nero, who was looking for someone to blame for the great fire of Rome, or it may have been some other situation. But what we know is that they were under tremendous persecution. And increasingly, it was looking very likely that they may actually have to give their life if they were to remain true to Jesus. But they're Jewish friends who by now were probably former friends because they had converted to Christianity, and their families, their Jewish families, who had probably written them off when they converted to Christianity, their friends and their family were living in safety. Their friends and family were living in comfort because Judaism was not being persecuted. And so you got to understand that there was a tremendous temptation to go back to Judaism to go back to the comfort and the safety of their former faith. This, was, this had to have been something that, that they were tempted to do. And here's the thing. They could go back to Judaism and still talk about Jesus as a great man. They could go back to Judaism and even talk about him being a kind of heavenly being, maybe like an angel. 
But the one thing they could not say is that Jesus was God. If they were going to hold to that truth, they could not return to the safety of their faith. And that's the one thing this pastor says that that Jesus truly is. He is saying to them, if, if he was only a man, then by all means go back to the safety and comfort of Judaism. But Jesus is so much more. He is so much more than merely a man. And so the pastor issues this warning that we find in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, then how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. According to his will. The the image here that's in the mind of the pastor as he writes these words is an image of a ship. I mean, the Greek words that, that he chooses here reflect an image of a ship that was safely moored to a dock. But sometime during the night, either because someone was careless or simply because of neglect, the ship had slipped off its moorings and now it was being carried adrift at sea. I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. It's very important to understand that this word was spoken to believers. Not to unbelievers, but to believers. The word that I read just a moment ago that says, how can we ignore so great a salvation? The the, the more accurate translation is neglect. Beloved, you can't neglect something you don't have. You can reject it, but you can't neglect it. You can only neglect something that you actually have. And so this pastor was saying to these early believers, your lives are anchored to the greatest reality in the universe. By all means, pay careful attention. Watch closely. Guard your hearts with everything you have so that you will not be carried along by the currents of this world. Because those currents are strong. And those currents are there to pull you away from your hope. C.S. Lewis, again, once said this. As a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? I think it's important to remember today, that the recipients of this letter were in so many ways like us. This fellowship of believers was not a first generation fellowship. They had not seen Jesus perform his miracles with their own eyes. They had not heard him proclaim his message with with their own ears. And they certainly had not been there physically when Jesus was raised up from the dead. 
They had received that message from others. It had come to them through the the proclamation of those who had seen him and who had followed him. In so many ways, they're like us, aren't they? I mean, we can understand. I mean, if, if even Thomas, who had seen with his own eyes, who had heard with his own ears, could doubt then surely this band of of believers thousands of miles away facing persecution, we we can understand why their faith may have wavered. Why there may have been the danger of drifting away from the anchor of their soul, Jesus Christ. And that's why the pastor wastes no time. That's why the pastor doesn't even take time to, to greet them. He doesn't even take time to, uh, for, for pleasantries. He immediately and simply lifts up Jesus. He lifts up Jesus powerfully because he understood this. The thing that had transformed that early first generation band of believers was the risen Lord. It was Jesus who had been raised from the dead. And he understands that if this same group of people can now see Jesus for who he really is, who he truly is, then they too will be transformed. He goes on at the end just to simply say, the Lord himself has proclaimed it, this message that we are sending to you. Those who walked with him have confirmed it, but God himself has guaranteed it. God himself has given attestation to it by miracles, signs, and wonders. And the greatest of all those is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, if you will, just to bow your heads for a moment. Let me ask those who are serving communion, if you will, to go ahead and make your way. And all those who will be praying, come and receive so that you'll be ready. But as they come, I want to ask you, if you will, just to keep your heads bowed. I wonder if there's anyone there this morning who has wondered about Jesus but has not yet accepted him. Maybe you've had intellectual doubts. Maybe you've had reason to question whether or not this is all a pipe dream. But I ask you to consider this morning that even after 2,000 years, the power of a Savior who was raised from the dead. Not only did He transform those early lives, but He is still transforming lives today. And I want to tell you the good news this morning that He can transform your life as well. If there is anyone here this morning who has never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm just going to ask you, every head bowed, don't worry about who's looking, nobody's looking. I want to see so that I can pray for you. Would you just lift your hand? If you're here this morning and you say, I'd, I've never accepted Jesus, but I want to do that right now. Father, I want to lift up those who just raise their hands. Father, I thank you that it is not an accident that you have brought them to this place today. I thank you, Lord, that you have brought them here to reveal yourself as the risen Lord. I pray in Jesus' name that you would now draw them to you. And I just want to ask you, for those who lifted their hands, if you will, just to to pray after me. Father, I know 
I'm a sinner. I know I need you. I desperately need for my life to be transformed. And today I'm asking for your forgiveness. And I'm accepting what you did on the cross when you gave your life for me. I'm putting my trust not in myself, but in you. And I thank you by faith that you have now claimed me as your own. But now I want to speak to a second group of people. And that's those of you who have come here who have already prayed that prayer. You've already accepted Jesus as Lord. But the truth is, you're drifting. Your heart has grown cold. Your faith has grown weak. You are drifting with the currents of this world away from the anchor of your soul. If that's you this morning, would you just very quickly just lift your hand? Because I want to pray for you as well. Lord, you see every hand that's raised right now. And I want to pray in Jesus' name that you would give each one a fresh revelation of yourself as a risen Lord. Lord, may they see you in all your glory. May we all understand that you are the greatest reality in the universe. And no matter what it might cost us in this world, it will never be in vain. So, Father, draw us to yourself. Restore us to our first love. Pour into us the power of your Holy Spirit that we too might live boldly and victoriously for your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you now, invite you, to come and celebrate at Holy Communion. On this day, we celebrate that Jesus Christ gave His body to be broken. And He allowed His blood to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I want to ask you to come boldly now to the throne of grace. And as you take that bread and dip it into the juice, remember that Jesus gave His life just for you. Receive His grace. Be restored. There are those who are at the altars right now who are ready to pray for you. If you want someone to pray, just kneel and lift your hands and they will come. They will pray with you right now, no matter what your need is. If it's for healing, salvation, forgiveness, come. Let us pray with you this morning.